Hello, product innovators. Today we learn from the owner of the national law firm on legal considerations for your product startup. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm excited to introduce Brett Colvin to the show. Brett is the president of Good Lawyer, a law firm tailored specifically to startups. Today, Brett is going to share some valuable knowledge on business law considerations when starting and scaling a hardware startup. So there's two main fields of law for a hardware startup. One is intellectual property protection, and aka patent law. But the second is business legal issues, things such as partnership agreements, non-disclosures, financing agreements, etc. Today, we're talking about the latter, legal considerations of your product business itself. What legal considerations should you be making? But almost more importantly, what legal things should you not be spending big bucks on right now? Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's uh, exciting to be here today. Interestingly enough, when I was kind of looking at the the backstory about uh, your firm, Good Lawyer, um, it really struck a chord with me because what you're doing in kind of disrupting the legal industry was pretty much what we did in the product design industry 20 years ago. We essentially wanted to take kind of global caliber design and apply it to startup small businesses. You're doing the exact same thing with the legal profession. Absolutely. You know, and I, you know, I think you said it in terms of how uh, your firm has approached the design industry. And trying to, you know, more or less allocate really high level services to a snack bracket of entrepreneurs that have been unable to access those in the past. I spent four, four and a half years as a corporate lawyer at one of the big shops here and uh, just found that the vast majority of business owners struggled to, you know, keep up with my $450 an hour fees. And at the same time, seeing the inefficiencies that were, you know, being driven based along that billable hour approach within the traditional law firm. And it just seemed like there was this obvious opportunity to streamline a lawyer's day and that, and thereby, you know, increase the access and affordability for business owners who, you know, desperately need legal help, but it's been out of reach until now. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to talking about um, some of those legal considerations around starting a business, but then also raising funding because both Mm -hmm. of those are, are generally you know, a big part of many of, especially hardware startups, which are generally fairly financial, financially heavy in the beginning phases mm-hmm. um, of the business. So um, why, don't you, why don't you kick us off just a bit, a bit of a background around um, some of the business concepts or, you know, through starting a business, what are some of the legal considerations very early on? When do you start thinking about kind of legal integration? When do you start thinking about those legal considerations when you're either forming your business or your partnership or thinking about starting your hardware product business? Totally. Um, you know, no matter what type of business you're, you're starting and, you know, hardware technology, you know, these types of things coming, you know, you kind of touched on it briefly. IP is a super important consideration, but we'll kind of leave that out for today. Um, for me, you know, for most entrepreneurs, going to a lawyer for the first time is a 
can be a bit of a scary endeavor. And that's really what good lawyer is trying to tackle is making that interaction less scary, um, easier, more affordable for business, you know, for new entrepreneurs or, you know, inventors, you don't need to talk to a lawyer right away. Um, you know, really when the idea is percolating and, you know, it's just you in your basement or whatever, you don't need to engage a lawyer yet. Really the first moment you need to start thinking about getting your legal ducks in a row, so to speak, is when you start bringing in stakeholders, whether it's you're selling your first product to a client, whether you're bringing in a partner to help you grow the business, whether, you know, you're bringing in investment, that's obviously a, a big, scary one for a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, but really when you're starting to engage new stakeholders, whether they're clients, partners, investors, that's when you really need to start thinking about, okay, what are my rights? What are their rights? And how does everybody stay protected? And we stay on the same page. Yeah. One of the kind of the easy, quick, pretty much free um, legal documents that, that is very common in the product design world is a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that, you know, we as a firm, whether a client or wants it or even knows what it is, we make sure to protect them that they at least at a bare minimum have a non-disclosure agreement in place because this is almost before potentially they're raising a seed round, before they're going to market, they're talking to, as you said, stakeholders. One of their stakeholders might be their product development partner or their website partner or whatever else that that they're, whatever other partners they're using. So can you just give a, a quick run through um, of what a, a non-disclosure agreement does, and then we'll get into you know looking at the more substantive kind of partnership agreements and stuff after that. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I think in short, a non-disclosure it's effectively a confidentiality agreement. I'm going to share information with you. You can't share that information with anyone else. If you do, and it harms me, now I have a suit against you for disclosing that confidential information. That's effectively what an NDA is. Um, And that's an important point there about, uh, you know, I think one of the uh, confusions that we see around NDA is this doesn't protect you in the market whatsoever. This is only an agreement between you and the party you're discussing it with. Absolutely. that's That's a first key distinction. Absolutely. And, you know, NDAs are, you know, as all contracts, you know, really important for delineating rights and expectations. And an NDA, you know, just by its nature makes it clear that the information being shared in that engagement is, you know, a secret, it's confidential, it's not to be shared with anyone else. My point to any of the, you know, entrepreneurs listening right now is you should absolutely have NDAs signed when you're out talking to potential product partners or whomever else, but recognize that it's not this um, you know, silver bullet and that, you know, you still should be cautious with the information you're disclosing and cautious with who you're disclosing that to. So common sense should always be, you know, riding through all of these circumstances and you really shouldn't feel like you've got this silver bullet. Yeah. I think that's a good point too, just in terms of establishing that relationship, making it very clear that the information is confidential, especially considering our listeners, a lot of them are product developers or product startups your IP is very important and Huge. it is, is very critical that that is the thing that you are building. That is kind of the, the backbone of your product business. So uh, it's very important to establish the understanding that that is confidential because if you don't have IP protection, like a patent or something, and you are discussing something without an NDA, then that information has been deemed not proprietary. 
Well, so let, let's then bring it to kind of a more substantive agreement, which would be mm. a, um, a vendor agreement or a partnership agreement, something to that regard. So we'll, we'll talk about financing agreements in a moment to get there. But I like the fact that you brought up um, the next level. So if you're actually going to now start selling or distributing or, or any other way, kind of moving your product to another stakeholder, uh, what legal advice do you have there? Because that that's where I believe it gets much more much more serious. I think when we're talking about you know vendor agreements and selling selling your your product to to customers, um, liability is going to be a big one. Making sure that there's clarity as to who's liable for what, um, and then the other one that I would mention is um, ownership of IP and that type of thing. So depending on who your vendor is, you know if you're selling direct to customer, probably less of an issue. But if you're selling to a vendor, you want it to be very clear in the agreement, you know, who owns the IP and how that vendor is allowed to use your IP, whether it's your brand or whether it's, you know, how your product is being included in another package or another product. You want to be very clear about who owns the rights to that IP. A lot of our, uh, uh, you know, customers end up in this situation too, especially when they're going through distributors or wholesalers where, uh, the the buyer, the the wholesale buyer, will ask for exclusive rights, and that's an interesting one that we see come across to say, okay, totally. look, we we like your product, we want to sell it, we're going to invest some money into into selling it through marketing or our channels or sales or whatever else, um, but in return, we want an exclusive. I also think that's another another point where it's really important to get strong legal advice to understand what you're giving up for that exclusivity? How long is it? What are some of the terms and uh, how to best protect yourself to ensure that uh, you haven't just handed over the ship without getting anything in return? That is a really, really good point. Um, and, and again, I think that one comes down largely to your leverage as you know the product creator. And then to your point, what are you getting back in return? Are you getting an exclusive back in return? And what's the time horizon on the exclusivity? If you're selling product, you can start being the one providing the contract. So that's another way that you can sort of create leverage as a supplier of product is being the one in control of the contract. That's so a very interesting. Not just tip. being a contract taker all the time, but if you actually can go to a customer with a contract that you've had drafted and you know their lawyer might rip it up and make, make changes, but at least it's starting from your precedent. Yeah, I think especially when we're talking about um, boxing in your business model, if somebody's simply going to buy 5,000 units off you and run with them, um, obviously it's still important to understand what's going on in the contract. But if somebody's going to buy 5,000 units and then also hold certain elements of your business hostage, that's where it gets exponentially more important. That's where you really have to understand what you're giving up. If there's a three-year exclusivity term in there, and you haven't put a minimum order or minimum royalty totally. or minimum profit provision in there, they could simply put that on a shelf and dry you out for the next three years, which may be your, your, your peak product lifetime, especially if it's anything related to kind of the global business climate that you're trying to sell into. If there's a time limit at all, uh, you certainly don't want to hold that back uh, totally. in the contract and not understand how those terms relate. Uh, what happens if they miss their promises? Understanding what the recourse is on that uh, that purchase agreement—that's really, really key. Especially when you've generally, as a hardware startup, have invested all this time and all this money getting the thing to production, getting this thing made. Uh, you're ready now to to flip the switch instead of spend money. You're now starting to make money. 
you need to understand how you're making that money and not just get excited by the fact that you got, you know, a big retailer to sign on or a big distributor to sign on. Understand what exactly you did get uh, for that deal. Totally. And, you know, I think, you know, just a practical negotiation tactic to implore would be, you know, again, it comes back to leverage. And so trying to, you know, have conversations with a few of those retailers is really going to put the, the product developer in a t- way better place than, you know, if it's clear to the vendor, the big retailer that, you know, they're your only option, well, that they're going to feel like they have a ton of leverage and they're not going to be, you know, very movable on terms, as opposed to if you can go into that meeting, you know, with a few seeds planted with a few retailers and leverage that, you know, in whatever sort of stage those other negotiations are in, leveraging that into better terms, which you're going to define in the agreement. Yeah. You know, we had, um, Mark Shanahan on the show, vice president at uh, Staples. And he said, uh, you know what, as soon as they, if they ask you, um, you know, who else are you talking to? And you're talking to three other retailers. You said, tell them. 100%. First of all, transparency and trust is very important in that relationship. But second of all, it, you know, something we always need to remind, especially first time inventors or first, first time product startups is the negotiation is a two way street. Don't forget that you're the one coming to them with that innovation that is going to increase their sales or perform better than what their competitors selling on that same shelf space. Believe in your product. <laughs> You've got it right. And, and I'm, you know, most inventors do, but at that time when you're in the negotiation, you're at the big offices, it's, it's scary. No question about it. Um, but you've got to realize at the end of the day, take your time, think about it, talk to your legal counsel, understand your agreement, consider your other options, right? Never put all your eggs in one basket. You know, think about what other individuals or companies are, are, are out there that may potentially buy that product as well. Reach out to oh. them, get the conversations going. Leverage, and then, leverage and expertise. You know, you, yes. you need to develop leverage within the context of the negotiation. And the best way that I've seen to do that is by having other opportunities, other retailers that are retailers that would sell your product and then expertise, you know, going in blind is the fo- most foolish thing you can do. If you're signing your first day, big vendor deal, like you need to have the right expertise at this table so that you can protect yourself. Um, we've seen a lot of entrepreneurs get just totally hooped because they didn't have the right expertise at the table. They didn't understand what the contract meant. And, you know, your exclusivity provision you brought up is a perfect example of one that, you know, could easily slip under the radar and be massively impactful in a negative way to your business if, you know, the whole world of your opportunities just shrunk because of this one agreement with, you know, a big player who does have the resources to enforce it if you try to you know, wiggle out. So it's really important that you try to establish leverage and you have the right expertise to guide you through the contracting process, especially if it's your first big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're talking sales and distribution, long timelines, right? What's the next three years of your business going to look like? That's really what you're, what you're dealing with. And I get it because, you know, if you're selling product, it might be your first big vendor deal ever. And, you know, maybe it's not that big and, you know, spending 10,000 on legal fees is totally unattractive at, at that stage in your business. And, you know, we're probably unable to service everybody listening to the podcast, but that's exactly what Good Lawyer came in to try to do. You know, $25 per page contract reviews that was built for this type of situation where you can have a new entrepreneur, you know, selling under their first vendor agreement. They can get that vendor agreement from the retailer and then have it reviewed for 25 bucks a page. So for a few hundred bucks, you actually have clarity and some negotiating points 
to go back to the vendor with. So again, leverage and expertise to me are the two most important things when you're, when you're contracting with a, a third party. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially big, big sales. It, it can't, can't stress that enough, you know, because now you are in the big leagues, this will paint the picture of the success of, of many years forward of your product. Um, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the work that you've done up until that point is contractually speaking, relatively easy. Uh, but then at that point in, in the sales, that's where it becomes very complicated. Um, totally. One other contract that I want to talk about um, from a legal perspective is the financing contracts mm. and, and talking about financing the business. Many product startups um, that you know can't self-fund as an individual or as a small business, they go for outside financing, whether it's simple like friends and family financing, uh, a little bit more complex like angel investor financing or you know, quite serious financing, like seed round, venture round or whatnot. Um, what can you speak to in terms of uh, some contract tips or some legal tips in and around uh, financing agreements? For sure. And one idea just popped in my head on the last topic that I just want to throw out, which is um, look for similar products. If a retailer is selling goods in sort of the same vicinity, suss them out and ask questions. How are you guys selling that product? What are the, what are the deal terms on that? You know, maybe they won't tell you, Smart. but don't be share, don't be scared to do your own little bit of investigating. Try to find some comparables for your own product, and then ask questions. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs will be shocked at a lot of the sort of transparency they get if they're willing to ask questions in those those negotiation meetings. Um, as for raising money, yeah, I mean the you know most founders start by bootstrapping. And then you find some some friends and family who believe in you and you raise money from them. And then, you know, the level up from that would be the angel and then on to the series. So just focusing a little bit on that early stage, family, friends, angel. Um, they don't have to be that different, to be honest with you. Friends and family tend to be the most lenient when it comes to, you know, they're just not that sophisticated. They're only allowed to invest in you under the exemptions because they're family or friends. They fall within your close network. Um, but the terms are often, you know, very similar. You see convertible notes, you, you know, you can also go the debt route, which is a really good option for a lot of companies, especially if you have a big order in, if you have a big order in and you need money to fill it, it's a great opportunity to get some debt capital, which in the long term can be a lot cheaper than equity. Um, but if you're looking for that, um, equity injection from friends and fam or, or early angels, um, you're, you know, my advice is to keep it simple. Uh, a lot of lawyers will, you know, look to create complicated, uh, you know, convertible notes with weird conversion triggers and this type of thing. At Good Lawyer, we didn't do that. We kept it dead simple. Um, I maintain the voting rights, but everybody, all of our investors, and, you know, we've got about 30 now, all of them own common shares. Everybody's at the party together. So, I think that is something oddly unique about Good Lawyer, I think, is just the straightforwardness of our cap table. But I think it's something, a lesson that can be learned by a lot of other founders. It doesn't have to be complicated. And for me, keeping everybody on the common shares as opposed to introducing preferred and different rights was everybody's at this party together. We're all going on this ride together. And for me, that really established a lot of nice alignment. Um, and, you know, our investors are, you know, some of the biggest proponents of Good Lawyer, which adds fuel to the fire. So let, let's talk about the simplest possible agreement. Um, you have uh, a good friend, 
they want to invest in the simplest straightforward thing. They want to invest in 25% equity of your business. You know, the most bare bones, no convertible notes, uh, you know, no debt financing, any of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. The very simplest agreement. What are some of the minimum terms that you should be considering in a very basic agreement like that? And then let's look at the next couple of agreements too, to explain, you know, what they are. And then what are just a couple of tips for, for some terms that you want to consider? In there. Yeah. So, I mean, full disclosure, I was a, a banking lawyer back in my heyday. So um, I didn't draft a lot of these equity agreements, but I have been on the entrepreneur side of these ones. And, you know, for us, we just used a, a simple subscription agreement. There's a ton of provisions baked in there, but it is very standard form. And really for me, when you're, when you get out of the convertible note realm, which I don't like for a variety of reasons, um, you know, valuation is probably the most important term within, and it, it doesn't even actually go into the agreement, the valuation, but that's going to be the stickiest one, trying to justify your valuation to your family and friends or the angel right. when you're still in sort of that fictional state, early stage company. Um, I can't even think of any of the specific protections in our subscription agreement um, that are worth highlighting, to be honest with you. Um like the, is, it, and in terms of like a you know a, a very bare bones agreement, you mentioned valuation. I think that's a good thing to to bring up here. Um, you know, you've got this vision, you've got this idea, you've got to bring that excitement to friends and family that you're essentially pitching to. Yeah. Um, and realistically speaking, that valuation is what's very difficult because generally you're raising the money, especially in the product business, you're raising that money pre. Uh, pre-revenue essentially. So you're, and generally it's, you know, a part way through development, some point between, you know, a little bit, let's say halfway through development that you've bootstrapped yourself and maybe needing to get more refined or in your first production run or whatnot. So uh, valuation is always very tricky because it's arguably valued at $0. It's arguably valued at $10 million, but you know, that's where I think it becomes very difficult, but you really have to sit down with individuals, be realistic, understand that they're investing early. They're taking considerable risk. Um, and understanding what that value really translates to as an early investor. One of the other things that we find too, is that, um, it's important to understand, especially in physical products, the further that you push product development yourself, the exponentially more valuable that company becomes. If you're just a person with an idea, it's worth very little. Uh, to to a to an investor, as soon as you now you know created some designs, uh, whatnot, some pro, you know some professional stuff, you've actually figured out how to build maybe the electronics, whatever. Now you're worth a bit more because you've actually got some technology. Then once you get to the point where you have, you know, real working functional prototypes, whatever else, well now now you, you've got the technology, and maybe at that point you filed for a provisional patent or some patent at that point. So you've got technology, you've got some protection, but the furthest that you can push it is actually having real sales. Good because if you have some sales and you can show profit margin, that's where you can actually get much more realistic understandings of massive market. You've actually proven people buy it. They like the product. And at each of those stages, you become more valuable. But it's important to think if you're just at one of the first or second stages there, really, you have to to give yourself a reality check and understand that asking for a hundred grand for 10% of your business is probably a pipe dream. And and that's where... It to- could get complicated. I, 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 I totally agree with you. And I, you know, I think at that early family and friend stage, you know, at least in my experience, people are, you know, they're betting on the horse. And so, you know, for me, I remember when, when we raised our first quarter million, we were sitting at, uh, 
you know, the bar drink, drinking some wine, having a chat. And I was trying to show the pitch deck and show, you know, where the platform was at the MVP and all these things. And, you know, our angel just kind of looked at me and I could just tell I was boring him with this stuff. And he just looked at me and he said, how much are you looking for? And on the spot, <laughs> I was just like, I, you know, I was expecting a bit more of a long winded sort of like dating approach to this. And it just came out of nowhere. And I said, $250,000. And he said, does that get me half the company? And I said, no, that gets you 20% of the company. And <laughs> that was it. And so my, my point bringing that, like, obviously that story was um, a lucky one for us. And, you know, again, for me, I think it's about building relationships really early. Um, that guy had known me for a really, really long time and watched me sort of grow up for a really long time and excel in a variety of areas. So again, he was betting on the horse, but I can't stress enough, even when it comes to friends and family, getting people to write you a check is a totally different world than most people have ever experienced. And you need a ton of belief. You know, I, di I didn't want charity. I wanted people that invested within my network in the company because they wanted to get rich one day and they believed in sort of where this was going. And I think for, you know, product builders, founders, entrepreneurs, you got to start planting seeds way earlier than you think. And, you know, anyone that has a desire to raise money in the future should go out and plant three seeds today because you're going to need to plant hundreds of seeds for a few of them to, you know, grow into an actual investor for you. So, right. Well, um, and you also, something really interesting to note about your product too, is that you had been successful in the industry, not obviously this business, not this business model, but you were a successful lawyer. You understood the game. You had, you had, you had achieved that success before. So you were actually bringing, you know, in some theory, pre-existing experience or pre-existing arguable, you know, sales, not exactly to this, but you, you had bring, brought that to the table, which is why you got a great valuation out of the gate. And that's a key thing you have to remember too, as a, as a startup, you're creating this new invention. Um, you have not yet proven sales. So your valuation is going to be substantially less than somebody who has already done it and now is maybe doing their second product or has already been in the industry selling a bunch of things and is now doing their own thing, which they already have distribution or channels or whatever else set up for. And that, oh, that's yeah. a big differentiator. Right? I mean, we're in Calgary and the, the former Skip founders, Andrew Chow and Jeff Adamson, um, they co-founded Neo Financial. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but they just raised 50 million bucks. And I'm pretty sure that they're pre-revenue or basically like, you know, MVP kind of revenue. Like they definitely do not have substantial revenue right now. And they just raised $50 million because the guys running that show have a huge success story. Yep. And, you know, they got some big players into the first round. But Which, which goes full circle around to the further you can push your business yourself, the more valuable, the more serious people are going to take you. Even friends and family. Like, yes, they trust you and, and, and vice versa. But uh, if they're investing hard cash that, that they've spent time and effort earning, they want to see the the better the prospect that you can prove to them in terms of getting an ROI on that cash, uh, the, the the exponentially higher the probability that they're actually going to give it to you and feel good about giving it to you. And then it's on you to succeed, right? You totally. really have they, they've put a lot of trust in you. Now you have to hit the hit the road running. And when you know we see it time and time again, um, founders that you know maybe are looking for that angel round, maybe they don't have the network to raise sufficient money. Um, you know, from the friends and fam, but when, even when you're going for that angel round, I see it time and time again of founders, you know, spending six months or a year and all they're trying to do is raise money. 
And I really don't think that's the approach you should take. You know, I think you, to your point, you got to bootstrap it as long as humanly possible. Absolutely. We bootstrap, bootstrap good lawyer for the first year and a half without raising a dime while I was still working full time at the firm. Um, so you really, I think that's a point is totally on. You got to bootstrap it as long as you can, because that valuation is just going to skyrocket as compared to what you can raise at when it's still just an idea percolating in your head. Yep. Um, so while we have just a bit of time, let's just quickly touch on the definitions of understanding what a convert convertible note is and debt financing, because those are sure. interesting, especially not usually in the product business. It doesn't happen too often in the development phase. But as you're starting to sell product and you're looking to scale, that is quite a common um, type of funding option that that entrepreneurs are using. So um, talk about uh, debt financing, because that's a little bit easier to explain. And then the convertible note uh, after that. Yeah. So, I mean, debt financing, you're going to the bank, you know, just like you're getting your mortgage, you're getting a pile of debt from the bank. They're likely taking some security over something. Um, but you have to um, you have to service the debt. You have to pay interest. Sometimes you can get some deferrals on that type of thing. But at the end of the day, you know, if your company is going to go the direction, you know, we all hope our companies go, debt is cheaper. So if there's a way for you, and you know, for our next round, I'm definitely looking at a combination of equity and debt, just because the debt can give you some of that operating leeway without having to give a big chunk of your company up. So I definitely think that a combination is a nice way to go if you can get debt get debt. A lot of startup founders aren't going to be able to get debt because they just don't have the assets to back the yeah, line. Corporate the, debt. They may be able to get personal debt, um, which of course, as the business scales is, is far cheaper if it, if it succeeds. Um, but uh, corporate debt is almost impossible for products until you actually have purchase orders totally. from buyers, right? So that's totally. important to remember about hardware. Um, if you're starting early and you really want to get that debt financing so that you don't dilute your equity, just know that that's going to be entirely personal, entirely. So that's either, you know, credit cards or personal line of credit or whatever, um, second mortgage, whatever that is. But uh, the, the getting debt from, especially from uh, formal institutions like banks and whatnot, uh, is not going to occur, into, occur until you get purchase orders or extremely, extremely rarely does that, that happen. Yeah, I'd say it, it, it happens, but it is pretty rare. And I know at least, at, you know, in Canada, a lot of the big banks are trying to turn their attention to how to lend to more technology based companies that, you know, have a different sort of um, trajectory. Yeah, we're seeing that in the, in the US, uh, many of the US banks too, like uh, around our offices in, in Texas and Miami, uh, even and especially in San Francisco. Uh, the banks are getting a bit more creative. Let's <laughs> call yeah, it. Yeah, well, and, uh, which, and, which is very limited still. But it's but, like moving the Titanic, right? Like they right. move so damn slow. But um, debt is always a great option if it's on the table. It's not going to be on the table for early stage companies. Period. Um, when yeah. we're talking about the convertible note, really popular tool. Um, you know, we didn't even touch on safes today, but the convertible note is a, a really popular tool. Effectively, it is a document that starts as debt, but can be converted into equity um, based on certain, you know, conditions and decisions made by the parties. So yeah, and generally at a discount, right? So the whole <coughs> idea is you, you invest in now, uh, kind of as a debt note, but then as the company grows, and as subsequent rounds come into play, um, you get to then convert that to equity, but at a discount to what that future price is, which is why the incentive is there to get in early. Yeah, I mean, pr presumably it would be, often be discounted. So, you know, 
the point that you were investing whenever that was a year or two, whatever, whenever that investment was made. Um, from an entrepreneur's perspective, I don't like the convertible note because it usually, and not always, if the entrepreneur has a ton of leverage, then um, this flips, but usually the investor gets the conversion right. And what that means is the investor gets to decide at a later date if they want equity in your company or if they want you to pay back the loan with interest. And as an entrepreneur, I don't like that because it takes power out of my hands. Now I have this investor with, you know, a big hammer who can come to me, you know, pursuant to the convertible note and say, Hey, I don't want to convert. I don't want that equity. You don't look that hot right now. I want my money back. And if you're an entrepreneur in that boat, that investor taking their money back with interest and like, you know, just kind of clearing their debt is probably going to tank you. Yeah. It might not be an option, right? Which, and, uh, you know, it's always a good point that to understand <laughs> what you're building here. Yeah. Back, and to, if, back to our earlier conversation. Totally. And when you're, and when you're looking at who's going to invest in your company, for me, I want people that are investing in me and my company to buy in for the long haul. And if you're buying in for the long haul, which they kind of are doing right with the convertible note, because the whole purpose of the convertible note is everybody hopes they convert it into equity because that means that the company's worth a lot. And you know, if they're converting it into equity, the equity presumably is worth more than the debt version. So it leaves the investor sitting in this place where they can recapture their debt or convert into the you know, high flying equity. But again, it, for me, it just puts a hammer in the investor's hands that as the entrepreneur, I don't like because I've now lost control over this really important piece of my business being this big lump sum of cash in my bank account that could be sort of the rug can be kind of pulled out from under you. So for that reason, I am not a proponent of uh, convertible notes, despite their propagation throughout the startup world. Well, it's also important to note too, that in the physical product space, convertible notes aren't going to happen in the earlier stage, unless you have a very technically advanced uh, product, a very techie, um, very hopeful project. Um, but even then it's, it's fairly rare. It's generally going to start happening in the scaling phase. So after you're, again, after you're starting to make sales, then that's where, especially in the hardware space, it gets a lot more probable that you can look at these different financing options. But before that, you're generally, generally looking at bootstrapping as far as you can, then looking at friends and family financing or potentially personal debt. Then you move up into these other options as you start to scale and grow your business from there, looking at either convertible notes um, or, or bigger, you know, bank back debt financing. That yeah. And then, and then the last one I just want to like flip out. Cause I know we're wrapping up here quick is, um, the safe, which is a type of agreement that was created, I'd say in the last like five or six years or so. Yeah. And it safe stands for simple agreement for future equity. And what the safe does is effectively delays the valuation. So you're an early stage startup. You want to raise money. You've got a few believers in you who are willing, willing to write you checks, but it's really hard to ascertain the value of the company today. That's where a safe could come in handy because it defers the calculation of what the valuation of the company is. And then there's some discounts to benefit the investors. So um, again, I think if you can cut a deal, it's the best because then everybody's aligned. Everybody's on the rocket ship together. Um, but a safe is another way that you can sort of lessen that burden as an early stage company and still get people in because, you know, they know that there's going to be a date in the future that's going to define that valuation. Right. 
Appreciate it. Uh, Brett, it's been great to have you on the show. Um, Pleasure. You know, just as a quick wrap up here. Uh, one, you know, we talked a bit about NDAs, you know, as a very baseline, really only just a direct one person, one company to a person or, or, you, or two people between each other, or two companies between each other, uh, limited protection. And we talked about sales agreements and how important they are. And number three, we went through a few financing um, options, essentially, and some things to consider around that, um, especially when we're getting into you know, agreements to buyers or big retailers when we're talking hardware or in these complex you know, partnership agreements, especially when we're talking convertible debt or equity agreements or whatnot. Um, how does good lawyer play into that? And you know, wh- at what point does it make sense for individuals to reach out to you? Or what, ty- what type of individuals are you looking for? Um, and how can they get a, a hold of a good lawyer? So yeah, I mean, anyone listening um, in Canada, you can find us at goodlawyer.ca. And uh, for any of the American listeners, don't worry, we'll be in the US soon enough. Um, but really for us, we're making it so accessible that I would say any entrepreneur that has a serious legal question, something that's been you know keeping them up at night, talk to a lawyer. You know, on Good Lawyer, you can talk to a lawyer for as little as $39. Um, I'll just throw it out here for anyone listening uh, to Kevin's show. Friends free is a free promo for an advice session. Um, we're trying to make it super easy to talk to a lawyer. If it's keeping you up at night, you got to talk to somebody. If you're bringing in stakeholders, you need a lawyer at your back to make sure that you're delineating those rights and expectations appropriately and make sure you understand what you're signing. If you don't know what you're signing, you got to talk to a lawyer because, um, it might feel like it's just a piece of paper, but contracts run the business world. So understanding what yours say is uh, critical. Absolutely. Brett, very much appreciate you taking the time to give this advice to the listeners. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Kevin. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.